Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. It's easier for people to learn how to do something than it is to learn why it works. When you walk into the Museum of Mathematics in New York City, the first thing you see is a very small circular racetrack with kids riding these three-wheeled bicycles over an undulating terrain that seems designed to knock you off your bike, except you don't get knocked off at all. You continue moving around that track. One more thing, did I mention that the wheels of the bike you're riding are actually square? And welcome to the world of Pete Winkler. Ivy League professor, author, mathematician, cryptographer, a patent holder, and puzzle master. So designated by the Museum of Mathematics for 2019-2020. So what is a puzzle master? In the SIDCast, I'm always attracted to creative people. And if you look over my guests in season one, I've had musicians, writers, inventors, entrepreneurs, visiting and telling their stories. But so many others in what many people would consider to be feels not really known for creative expression. I'm thinking about business, science, sports, military. Well, they've gotten to where they've gotten to precisely by being creative, breaking the rules, asking questions others haven't, or asking questions others have, but in entirely new ways, navigating and crafting a career by both adapting to change around them and then creating change. In other words, I don't know how you can fulfill your aspirations in whatever your chosen field is if you're not creative. And not incidentally, it's so much more fun than just fitting into a box and staying there. Which brings us back to Pete Winkler, our guest on this episode of the SIDCast. His life is all about puzzles, both in his traditional, a professional work as a mathematician and a scientist, and how he's been able to take that science and make it so much more accessible to everyday people. And he does that by creating puzzles. He's going to offer up a few in this podcast, so listen carefully. And you may also get a kick out of hearing me grapple with one or two of those in real time before Pete reveals the insights that are so easy to miss. But once you hear those insights, you can't help but wonder, how did I miss that in the first place? So are you ready? Here we go. Welcome to the SIDCast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and I'm here with Professor Peter Winkler. Pete, welcome to the SIDCast. Thank you very much, Sid. We're actually sitting here in a little room off of the main uh, lobby of the National Museum of Mathematics, where Professor Winkler, where Pete is uh, very heavily involved, just gave me a a fantastic tour of some of the uh, exhibits, which is kind of amazing. And there are a lot of kids here. So if you hear a little bit of sound in the background, it's kids having fun. And that's generally a good background for anything. I agree. Yeah. What got you into puzzles in the first place? It's hard to say, but I always loved puzzles when I was a kid. And when I heard a good mathematical puzzle or any kind of a puzzle, really, so that I wouldn't forget it, I would write it down in a little brown book. And years later, when I was already a professor, I was at a big meeting, and a fellow named Klaus Peters approached me, and he said, I heard you had a great collection of puzzles. Why don't you email them to me, and I'll publish them? Huh. You made it sound so easy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that, and he did. That and was, was it easy, actually? I was as easy as writing a book could possibly be, I think. Okay. And I loved the puzzles. I enjoyed writing about them. So I wrote a puzzle book that he published, and then the second one later that he published. But these were um, puzzles that you had been collecting for years. That's right. 
But the deal is that once you start publishing books on puzzles, more people start sending you great puzzles. I see. And some of the puzzles I compose myself, but most of them are collected from around the world. People send them in, or I read them in a math Olympiad competition, or in a Putnam competition, or something like this, or just hear them on the street, so to speak. It's almost like collecting jokes to collect puzzles, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit tricky sometimes to track down the source, but I do the best I can. I publish these two books, and I'm working on a big third book. Wow. And so what's the name of the actual of the books, the two volumes so far? The first volume is called Mathematical Puzzles, A Connoisseur's Collection. Mm-hmm. And the second one is called Mathematical Mindbenders. Okay, so I have to ask you whether the average person, meaning me, who is not particularly mathematically Mm -hmm. inclined, can do some of these puzzles. The answer is yes. These puzzles are aimed toward the public who enjoy mathematics, Mm -hmm. right? So anyone who's had high school education in mathematics can do these puzzles. I don't use puzzles that require higher college or graduate level of mathematics Mm -hmm. to solve. Mm -hmm. Although you will probably learn some new mathematics if you read my puzzle books. Right, right. But I love the amateur audience. Lots of young people, lots of old people who like math but maybe never really studied it. I think my readership is pretty broad in that respect. And people are in touch with you, they call you or they email you? They do. Uh, What do they say? Like, What what are some examples? Well, sometimes they give me better solutions to the puzzle I just published. You're crowdsourcing some of these solutions. Oh, that's right. No, it's amazing. Sometimes, uh, every now and then, I put out a classical puzzle. I put one out called the Mange Circles, which had a famous proof. And one of my readers pointed out to me that that proof was wrong. How it was. It was just plain wrong. And it's it a was, famous proof. That was it's a famous somewhere. proof. It's still the proof you will find on Wikipedia if you look up the Mars circles. But it's wrong and just amazing. So wow. in my second book, I published a, a correct proof of this very nice little So theory. what kind of volume of notes and emails do you get? I mean, there are a lot of people out there that are into this, right? There are. I would say that I get three or four emails a week. Yeah. Many of them are just queries about, I don't understand this puzzle, or Mm -hmm. they propose a puzzle that I already know about, or something like this. But other times, it's a wonderful new puzzle I haven't heard of, or as I say, or a better answer to one of the previous So what's an example of a, I don't know if there's a typical puzzle, because I guess puzzles are all different, but what would be an example? Okay, so here's an example of a very nice puzzle, which appeared on the Putnam exam many years ago. The Putnam exam is a very difficult mathematics exam given to college undergraduates, Mm -hmm. and people compete for scholarships or whatnot. And they asked this very nice puzzle. They devised a character called Chenille O'Keel, a female basketball player. Mm-hmm. And the hypothesis of the puzzle is that her free throw percentage was below 80%. At the beginning of the season, Mm -hmm. she had a good season. And at the end of the basketball season, her free throw percentage was above 80%. Mm -hmm. And the puzzle asks the following simple question. Must there have been an instant during the season when her free throw percentage was exactly 80%? An instant as in one game, for example? No, even one moment in one, one moment game. In time. One moment in, in one game. Yeah. Maybe she just made a shot, and, and all hit. of a sudden, right there, it hits 80%. And so the question is, was it necessary that she had to have been at 80% at some at point? At some point. That's exactly the question. 
And what makes this a beautiful question is that reasonable, rational thought leads to the wrong answer. Right? <laughs> That's <laughs> always what makes right? a good uh, um, story. People know about a theorem, even if they don't know it by name. There's mm-hmm. a theorem called the intermediate value theorem. That tells you that if you go continuously from one value to another value, mm-hmm. then you must pass through all the values mm-hmm. in between. Yeah. Okay. But people also know that a process like foul shooting is not a continuous process. When you take a shot, you either make it, in which case your percentage goes up, or you miss it and your percentage goes down, but it jumps each of these times. Mm -hmm. And something that jumps around doesn't have to hit all the points in between. So, and this was my reaction when I first saw this puzzle indeed. And then I tried to actually show how it should be easy to actually construct a sequence of events which would lead to Chenille O'Keele jumping over the 80% mark. And it turns out you can't do it. You can't. You can't do it. It turns out that 80% is a special fraction. It's a fraction which you cannot jump over when you're going up. 80% 80% is... Yes, as you as can a, jump over 60%, so and it, you can jump over 70%. Uh, you cannot jump over 80%. The question you have to say, hit it on the nose. If the question was based on 70% or 78% or 83%, but, then it would have worked. But it doesn't because of it. something uh, special. There's something special about... So the reaction is, who knew that? I mean, that's amazing. Now, how could that be? Yeah, how could that happen? And eventually you do the math, and you work out that a fraction's that are of the form k minus 1 over k. So a number over a number, which is one bigger, have this property that you can't jump over them going up. And you can prove that. But somebody giving you a theorem to do this is not as much fun as somebody gives you a puzzle. You try to solve it, and then eventually you figure out what's going on yourself. And then you really understand something. That's the great thing about a good puzzle like that one. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me also think about the difference between trial and error or empirical turns at something versus a theory. That's right. And I'm curious, first of all, your take of that. Is one work better than another? Maybe under certain circumstances, no doubt. But also more generally, how is knowledge advanced? over time in mathematics between these two pathways that I assume they're the most common choices that people have for doing research. That's right. I think that experiment is the preferred means for discovery and proof in mathematics is the preferred means for verification. So we need to use both of these things hand in hand. And that's what a puzzle can do for you, right? Instead of In the classroom, you might just see someone write down a theorem on the board and prove it or tell you about a theory, the basic laws of probability or the basic axioms of topology or something like this. But having someone give you something that you can play with first and then kind of see what's going on and then try to demonstrate it by proving it is a wonderful thing. Now, not everything works these two ways, right? Sometimes you discover something via a theory and sometimes you can't prove something and you can just conjecture that it's true, and you can just try to show that it seems to be true in most cases yeah. and be satisfied with that, because not everything is easy enough for us poor humans to prove. <laughs> so I'm also thinking about Einstein's equations that were proved with empirical data. I think it was just an anniversary, perhaps, of some of those famous tests. That's right. The world. Yeah. yeah. And that, so there's an, an extreme example, perhaps, of somehow he, that's why he's Einstein, (laughs) came up with this theory that later was tested and found to be correct. So that's an interesting way about how research might progress. How about learning? So 
I'm a teacher as well, very different topics, but I've always been a believer in letting students kind of try to figure out for themselves Mm -hmm. as opposed to saying, well, here's some principles or here's a framework to help you understand how economics might work or how uh, different managers could make uh, better decisions or think about their strategic planning or what have you. You can give those frameworks that have been developed by researchers over time, been used by consultants and others. And students are really good at applying that framework, but I don't believe they get a ton of learning out of that. So that's my bias on that. What do you think? That sadly is a fact, I think, in many fields, not just mathematics and economics. Mm -hmm. It's easier for people to learn how to do something than it is to learn why it works. And of course, it's useful to know how to do something and you need to know how to do things. But if you want to jump ahead, it really pays to learn why something works. I do try in my classes to get students interested in why something works by looking at some hands-on empirical stuff, sometimes by writing a computer program, sometimes by just thinking and playing guessing games. And I think it's great to have that as one technique Mm -hmm. for getting people interested enough to really think about what they're doing. But ultimately, you need many. Whatever tools you have in your tool chest for getting students interested in why something works instead of just how. Right. I think about the museum here, and these are mostly kids today, but there are some adults on some of these exhibits as well. But these kids, are they're not thinking mathematical formulas, obviously. They're just playing. It's pure play. And it turns out that they love it. You should, well, you know, but the people listening to the podcast today should just kind of imagine how happy these kids are jumping around doing stuff. And they're actually demonstrating all kinds of mathematical principles. They are. And some of them are, are think that that part is part of the cool part. When they stick out their arms and, and they see their arms becoming tree fractals, the mathematical part of it is often a very cool part to them. So yeah. they're not just playing. The Wouldn't game. it be interesting to see the spark that some of these kids, they're going to they're gonna stick with them for some of these kids, right? Oh, yeah. And they're going to be wondering, and I don't know whether it gets filed away or they go home and they tell their mom or their dad they want to learn more and they get a book appropriate for their age or some video or something on YouTube, but they get that spark and then later they actually want to understand it better. That's right. I mean, just the association of math with fun. I mean, if we could just make that association mm. and do no more, that's already, I think, a major accomplishment. That, that is really a great point. I used to, as a kind of afternoon program, I used to teach writing to kids, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade. And they come maybe once a week over to the house and be 10 of them and we would do different writing games. And it was a 100% game. Not, not everybody thinks about writing mm-hmm. when you talk about math as a game, as a fun. A lot of people today, a lot of adults have a lot of trouble with writing. And these kids, they just, it was a game and they did fun things and they loved it. And I haven't done that now for a few years, but it's really something when you bump into one of those kids now, because they've gone to college, they're post-college age, and they were never afraid of a blank page. You know, it's not that they became writers, although it's possible one or more might, but they're not afraid of it. It's just a natural process. And that's probably the best thing that came out of that. And I'm thinking about exactly the same thing with respect to math here at the museum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. So, Pete, I also understand that you host a series of puzzle-themed dinners for executives. What's that about? We meet once a month at a restaurant. Uh, we have drinks and dinner. Okay. And maybe a dozen people or so. And uh, there's some pretty impressive people in this class. It's a regular, ongoing... It's a regular thing. And the topic of the course is probability and intuition. And, of course, puzzles play a big role in in this because puzzles help us figure out where our intuition is likely to go off the rails. So we present puzzles, we talk about solving them, 
We talk about what is the intuition that led us astray? What is the correct intuition for this problem? It's been a lot of fun for me. I hope for them too. Right. <laughs> so it's a small group, I guess, if it's mm -hmm. people around one or two tables or a private room or something like this. We get a private room for yeah. these, yes. Yeah. You're not lecturing. You're sharing some puzzles and people are working them through. That's right. Everybody participates. It's been yeah. quite lively, yes. Yeah. So what attracted or attracts the executives to come and do this? I think a lot of executives are very smart people who are doing important stuff, but haven't forgotten the fun that they had doing math when they were younger. Some of them are still doing, still using math to help make decisions. Some of them are investment bankers or whatnot. One of them is a writer of a mathematics column. And, you know, I actually asked at the first session what people are trying to get out of the course. Uh -huh. And it sounded like their objectives were pretty well in line with mine, which were sort of number one, to have a lot of fun with math and puzzles. Mm -hmm. And number two, to test and refine their in mathematical intuition. As you know, most decisions are not made by writing down equations mm -hmm. or doing fancy mathematics. We make thousands of decisions every day, and most of them are made with our mathematical intuition. And the people in this course have good mathematical intuition, but they would like it to be even better. They know that I'm not someone who would necessarily make better decisions than they, or who know their business is better than they do. Sure. I certainly am not. But I have collected all these wonderful puzzles that test intuition, and they're having a good time with them. Yeah, and so I work with a lot of managers, a lot of executives. They seem to love intuition. They seem to really think that's critical, and it's equated, generally speaking, with experience. And I'm wondering whether people are walking in the room up with a little bit of that, or maybe they're self-selected. The fact that they're there is they realize intuition can hurt them. Is it a little bit of that? Uh, there is a little bit of that, I think. If so, I tried to even reinforce it. <laughs> uh, yeah, the fact is that human intuition is really terrific. And at this stage, artificial intelligence, say I can't really compete with human intelligence on many fronts. So it's really unfair to say that our intuition is faulty because it stumbles here or there, especially when it stumbles because of puzzles, because puzzles are designed <laughs> to, you know, get a wedge into that very narrow part where your intuition is likely to go astray. So I can give you an example. Yeah. So here's a puzzle I came up with that I'm pretty happy with. Okay. And I actually gave this to the executives at the end of our last meeting, and we're going to talk about it in a few days. Mm -hmm. So here's the puzzle. There are two baseball teams, the Ookton Earlies and the Linthicum Lates, who are rivals, and every year they play each other in a best-of-seven series. So they play baseball games until one team has won four games, yep. and that team is declared the winner, and some sort of major trophy may change hands at that point. So the hypothesis is that the teams are evenly matched, except that each team has a small advantage playing at home. So each team wins a game, say, with probability 51% if the game is played at home. Mm -hmm. Now, every year, the first three games are played in Elton, the home of the Earlies, and all remaining games are played at the home of Atlanticum, the home of the Lates. And the question is, which team has the advantage? Which team is more likely to win the series? So this is an interesting test, and we'll see how they do when the class next meets. But I'll tell you what's being tested and how this works. Okay. So it seems reasonable to say, okay, look, the series is going to last four, five, six, or seven games, just like the World Series does. Mm -hmm. And it seems like on the average, the series maybe would last five and a half games or so. 
And why is that? Why is that? The well, average? if the numbers four, five, six, and seven were equally likely, mm-hmm. then the average would be five and a half. But they're not equally likely, so maybe this is a little bit of a dubious conclusion. So one thing you could do is, okay, let's work out the probabilities that the series lasts exactly four games, five games, six games, or seven games, and then compute the correct average. And if you do that, it turns out that the correct average is more than five and a half, but less than six. Why is that? What's the intuition behind that? Well, I'm not sure if there is a good or bad intuition here, but the intuition that if if something could be four, five, six, or seven, that the average should be around five and a half, Mm -hmm. is pretty good intuition. It won't always be true. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's pretty close to being right. So the average number of games played is less than six. That means that on average, three games will be played in Elkton, and on average, fewer than three games in Linthicum. And therefore, the Elkton earlies have the advantage. So this is the intuition backed by some mathematics, and it seems good. But it turns out it's quite wrong. <laughs> so what happens is that the uh, even though the late games may not be played, the advantage they give to Linthicum is just as great as the advantage given to Elkton by the early games. And... This is a little bit difficult to think about, and one way to convince yourself of this is ask yourself, well, wait a minute, suppose that all seven games are always played. It doesn't matter to the outcome if all seven games are played, and if all seven games are played, then four of them are in Linthicum and three of them are in Elton, so Linthicum lates should have the advantage. Yes. And that turned out to be correct reasoning, and when we go more deeply into the intuition, we see that what's going on here is that the reason is that having the home field on the seventh game, which is unlikely to be played, is still a very good thing for Linthicum, is that the advantage is there when they need it. And having something there when you need it is just as good as having something that's there all the time. And that's what's really going on with the home advantages for the Linthicum lates. So you see so that you intuition see comes in, mathematics comes in, right, right. and you get a, a counterintuitive result. It turns out that it's quite paradoxical. If the lates and the earlies play each other every year for a thousand years, then the statistician for the whatever league it is that they play on yes. will discover that Elton has won more of the games and Linthicum has won more of the series. That's very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> they won more of the games because more of the games that were actually played were played in Elton. But they won more of the se- that Linthicum won more of the series because of the reasoning I, I explained before. And you can you can just model that out. You can model it out. You can model it out. You can do it with a simulation. Although, you'd actually have to simulate quite a lot of games for these statistics to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about small advantages here. I can imagine a long debate and discussion from a lot of people are not going to quite buy that, no matter... Uh, oh, yeah. I no, mean, if you're saying it, they're going to believe it, but <laughs> that doesn't mean they really... Well, no, that. my class won't. They won't believe it. They'll have to be convinced. Yeah. I don't want people believing me. It's not like giving a lecture, maybe in political science or mm-hmm. English. I don't want my students believing me. I'd rather have my students doubting everything that I tell them and then confirming it for themselves. That's where the learning comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sports analytics have become gigantic and so many people are involved with it. So first of all, what's your take about sports analytics? I mean, have you been involved with that yourself, for example, or you've just been observing it? Mostly just observing. I do enjoy sports and I do enjoy thinking about analytics and thinking about decisions made by players and especially coaches, for example, in in football. And they do provide good fodder for me for puzzles Mm. and for just talk. And they are especially concerned, I think, with probability and intuition, which was the subject of the the dinner course that I was telling you about. 
For example, there's been a lot of debate that you've probably heard about, about something called the hot hand. So athletes often feel that there are times when they can do no wrong. They're superstitious. That's right. They can be superstitious about it. So the question is, are they right to be? Are there times when it seems like the basket really is much bigger? And well, this has been studied by a number of people. And there were some famous articles 10, 20 years ago, basically debunking the myth of the hot hand. I think part of the reason that feeling of a hot hand comes about is that people are not aware of how streaky real randomness is. Mm. There are some famous tests you can ask someone to write down what they think is a random series of H's and T's representing fair coin flips. And typically, you can tell real such sequences from fake such sequences because the ones that people write down don't have long enough runs. And it's that same phenomenon. So people do have long runs, and they conclude that they have a hot hand. Interestingly, only a couple of years ago, it turned out that there was a subtle mathematical mistake that was made by some of the people who debunked the original myth of the hot hand. So the myth is not as debunked as it once was. Interesting. But it still is a very interesting notion. This business that people don't realize how streaky randomness is comes up in other places. I was actually in the Vietnam draft many years ago. And those of you who were around at that time might remember that there was a big controversy because it appeared that the birthdays drawn from the bowl by one of the house representatives, that's how they figured out the draft order, were not done randomly. I think some month had six birthdays come up before some other month had any or something like this. And there was a big hue and cry. And of course, if you check the math, it turns out that, yeah, that's something that's perfectly likely to happen under, even if the yeah. dates were perfectly random. So it's interesting to see what this, how this comes up in real life. I think. Now, the, the hot hand with a big enough sample size, this is just a random fluctuation of things that happen and, and it all kind of makes sense. Hmm. The other hand, when you think there's a hot hand and you're in that hot hand, you're seeing the ball and this what they say in baseball. You're seeing the ball, or the hoop is bigger, and all this type of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Is it not possible that that actually leads to higher performance subsequently because you believe that you're better at it right now? Well, that's pretty much what they were testing. So what they were trying to test was basically if you hit a foul shot, are you more likely to hit the next one than if you miss a foul shot? Mm -hmm. And the answer turned out to be it's just about the same. <laughs> and you would think that if confidence helps in that situation, then you'd be more likely to hit after you've just made a hit than to hit after you've just had a miss. As the research looked at longer data points on the hot hand, I mean, one foul shot could be anything, but yes, 10, they 10 have, in a row, for example. Yes. So they've studied, okay, if you've just had a streak, are you more likely to continue yeah. the streak than not? Mm -hmm. As I say, there was this flaw yeah. in some of the original studies, but still the bottom line is that there's very little change in the probability that your next shot will go in based on anything that happened in you the You can past. see I'm disappointed with that, right? <laughs> I can see you're disappointed, but uh, yeah. yeah but so There might be a tiny bit of influence, but it's really not what it seems like. The puzzle, puzzle for me is there's a lot of research in medicine on the placebo effect and how enduring it is. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the placebo effect is, I don't know if it does for sure, but one explanation is you believe that this medicine is going to help you get better, even though it's a sugar pill. Well, that's pretty closely related, at least in my mind, to what we're talking about. You believe that you're better. You believe it's going to work. You believe that scratching your ear, you know, or hockey players are legendary as they go through the playoffs, never shaving. 
used to be. I think they wear the same socks, but I think that probably created even more problems of a different type. But that's why I struggle with this idea that the hot hand's not right. There's evidence in various places. When you think something is true, you behave in a way that is consistent with that. Yes, and this doesn't actually contradict that idea. The placebo effect certainly does exist, and it's accounted for partly by the fact that your psychology does influence your health. And confidence that you can get rid of a problem might indeed help. It also has an effect in how a patient might report the result of an experiment. Mm. You see, you can't fool the basket. There could be some additional error in reporting that's right. for its placebo effect. But I don't think you're saying that that's all of it. There's no, no, no. Psychology definitely plays a big role in medicine, including medicine that doesn't seem to be directly about the brain or the nervous system. But whether you can put it to work to think a basket seems to be questionable. It would be really interesting to, I'm sure anytime I think of something, somebody's working on it because the world's so interesting in that way. But for people that are doing these various experiments in psychology and then the sports analytics folks or the mathematicians, and I don't know whether you need to do brain imaging to try to collect data or something else. I think the experiments that look whether the ball goes through the hoop or not, you can't argue with that. That's it is it or it isn't. So it's pretty clear. But if there's a psychological effect that makes you potentially feel like you could be better or perform better, and it doesn't actually play out in the data where you're not sinking more hoops, one hypothesis, there's something's going on that might negate the some version of a placebo effect when it comes to ultra clear cut outcomes. Yes, you might be right. For example, it certainly seems like a quarterback who is more confident in gaining confidence can be a superior passer and a superior team leader. It's harder to test that, but I wouldn't be surprised if it were true. It's a much more complex phenomenon yep. than just sinking a basket. You're right. Yeah, because now you're talking about this thing called leadership and teams and interactions. and yeah. yeah, exactly. Do you have a favorite puzzle? A favorite puzzle? I know you have a lot of favorites. I can just know that for sure. But Here's a cute puzzle that, again, has a little bit to do with intuition. Mm-hmm. Very simple. It goes like this. How old is the average child when that child reaches half of his or her adult height? Oh, boy. How old is the average child when, when that child reaches half, half of its adult height? So the average height, well, men and women are very different. So let's say... Well, the answer might be different for a man or woman. Yeah. That's true. Hmm? So if it's, if it's a man, I don't know what the average is. Maybe it's 5'8". I'm going to make that up. Something like that. At what age do they typically reach well, short of three feet? But that assumes a linear progression of height over time. Well, you haven't assumed anything yet. I know, but my thinking as I start to do that's this right. divide by two calculation that's right. a faulty assumption. That's right. So that's a good example. I like this because it's a good example of figuring out what's gone wrong. Many people say, okay, so adult height might be reached at age 16, so we'll guess eight years old. But then they think better on it. Mm-hmm. And I think, okay, well, wait a minute. Maybe growth is not linear. Yeah. And in addition, there's a very big factor that people often forget, which is that you don't start at zero. <laughs> so that's very when, true. When you're born, you're almost two feet long already. Mm. You know, 20 inches or something like that is typical for a baby. So if you put these two facts together, then maybe you're, people are not surprised to find out that the average child is only two years old when it reaches is that what it's it's all tight. Two? Yeah. yeah, I think it's two and a quarter for girls yeah. and two and a half for boys. So let's see, what makes that puzzle such a great puzzle? I mean, it's simple. I'm going to tell you what I see and you tell me. Okay. So it's very simple. Everyone can understand it. Mm-hmm. It's very complex once you start thinking about it. It's yeah. clever. 
once you find out the answer, you start laughing and saying, of course, that makes a lot of sense, but many will not get close to answering that. Are there any other characteristics that make for a great puzzle? Sure. So you heard the Chenille O'Kill puzzle, which, yes. and where you learn something new that you never had thought of. Mm-hmm. And the idea of paradox is something that runs against your intuition is always nice. Mm. To me, a good puzzle has certain entertainment value. Mm. It's fun. Most puzzles that you see in contests, in problem contests, like the International Mathematical Olympiads, Mm. are not designed to be entertaining. (laughs) They're designed to be challenging. They're designed to test you. But I like a puzzle that's also entertaining. And I like a puzzle which also doesn't involve a lot of numbers or writing something down. Something that can be passed by word of mouth. That adds fun to a puzzle, too. Right. And something that can be solved by elementary methods. As you know, I like those. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the ideal puzzle is one that has an easy solution that's hard to find. But every now and then you find brilliant puzzles which sound easy and are hard, and others that sound hard and are easy. Mm-hmm. People often tend to measure puzzles by how easy or hard they are. And this, I think, is a mistake. I think that's not what counts. What makes a puzzle a great puzzle is not being easy or hard. It's being clever. It's being engaging. It's being fun being fun. As you're saying all that, I'm thinking about, I mean, puzzles are many walks of life. Literature, many parts of literature have great puzzles. There's a classic surprise ending, you know. Oh, they, yes, indeed. They put, they put Every it, mystery you read is a puzzle. It's, it's a puzzle, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Have you ever studied uh, the, kind of the pattern that, let's say, mystery or, you know, the, the classic old Henry stories with the surprise ending? Or even you take something modern, like, you know, a show like Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm, where they have these various pieces that come together at the end in some way that once you've really watched that show a lot, you can begin to see that pattern, <laughs> but it's still clever. I agree, and I very much enjoy a well-put-together plot and a wonderful surprise ending. I haven't studied those things. I believe there are people who do, who mm-hmm. study mysteries and also who study jokes and analyze humor. And these things are closely related, of course. Right. I enjoy these things very much. Right. Um, the other thing I think of is you, the example of at what age are you when you reach half your adult height? Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not a linear progression at all. I study and talk about leadership a great deal. Most things about leadership are not linear. And many, many people, I would say the vast majority of people, just automatically think that they are. For example, if something is good for you, if exuding confidence is what a leader should do, then you, of course, more confidence is great. Please just think about it for a moment. <laughs> and you start veering into hubris and arrogance and other bad things. Discretion is the better part of valor, right? <laughs> yes. um, I think it's true for a lot of things, but people tend to assume linearity. I mean, for... They do, you know, when they're diet fads. I'm just thinking example, the yes, same. Yeah. I'm just thinking the same thing. You know, that you have to eat a certain way, but you could go too far. Our bodies and our brains are more complex than that, which is really kind of (laughs) cool. And I think that these days we see a lot of divisiveness in politics, for Mm. example. And that is part, I think, of the same phenomenon. It's easy to get to see oneself at one end of a spectrum Mm -hmm. and not to look closely at each event as it occurs and try to ferret out the truth. I have a theory that puzzles actually help you think more about finding the truth and a little bit less about arguing a point of view before you think about it. 
You've also talked about how puzzles can help people in interviews, whether you're, I suppose, if you're interviewing someone, but especially, you know, a good interview will put the interviewee in a situation that's real to the job that they're applying for. Mm -hmm. And so there are people that ask about a a puzzle. They give them a puzzle and they want to know, not necessarily they can solve it, but how they think through that. How they think through it, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So when you've written about or talked about puzzles in the context of job interviews. What were you getting at there? Yeah, I think some people perhaps have signed, I'm giving a course in puzzle solving for the general public. Mm -hmm. And some of those are people who maybe don't think of themselves as good puzzle solvers. And they're a little worried that someone will give them a puzzle in a job interview or just in an ordinary conversation and they'll be caught short. And part of the answer is that confidence can help an awful lot. And just having some idea of where to start thinking about solving a puzzle, that can help a lot too. But it also can help to be reminded that puzzle solving is a little small part of any job, right? Yeah. So an interviewer is not going to rely entirely on that if he or she is a good interviewer. Some people are terrific at solving puzzles given time and leisure and with the pressure off and maybe not with the pressure on. And lots of my mathematician friends belong at that end of the scale. They're not puzzle solvers. They think deeply about a theory. They take a long time to work out the details of something. And they're not good at solving, answering questions quickly. And others are, it varies. Isn't that interesting, though? Because there's so many standardized tests that kids go through. SAT and and LSAT and MCAT and GMAT. And they put a gigantic premium on answering questions quickly. They do. Um, Although I know that test makers are trying to reduce that influence as much as possible. And we also try to do that. You and I probably both as teachers, Mm -hmm. when we give tests in class, we try to allow plenty of time to think about the question so that it won't be a race against time. That's that's exactly what I do in my own world. I give more time than they should really need just because you want to know how people think and how they address an issue and a challenge. And there's not that many situations in the world where you got to decide instantly about something. There are some, but they're not that common. Typically, what you can do in a course, as you know, is they've a combination of things, uh, homework and take-home exams, along with things in class. Right, right. So that you get to see a student performing in different situations. You know, what about IQ tests? You have a limited amount of time in a typical IQ test. So for some people, as you described, that are extremely smart, they take longer. And so they would score lower on an IQ test. I haven't heard much about IQ tests, I have to say, in some years. And I think the whole idea that you can even try to measure intelligence on a linear scale Mm. is becoming recognized as rather dubious. Yeah, Different people are good at very different things. You're right. The modern version are these SAT-type tests that kids have to go through. It's not exactly IQ, but there's some analogy to that. Hopefully, uh, college admissions boards have learned that great students can come up who are not good at taking multiple choice exams. I think there's more and more recognition, more and more schools that are not necessarily requiring that anymore. So in the basketball example, because you could see, I just don't like that answer, despite the fact that uh, you could prove it 10 times over. (laughs) What about learning? That basketball example, the hot hand example means, implies that at some point you reach your natural limit to your ability. And at that point, that that model actually makes perfect sense. But if you are learning and getting better, the psychology of the thing could be even more powerful. If I'm doing well, I like to keep going. (laughs) I like to stay in it longer, which will improve my learning. 
Oh, you're absolutely right. So these tests were done on people who were already basketball players. Yeah, so they've hit so, there. So we're not worried about motivation here. Mm -hmm. But if you take just a young person who's learning how to play basketball, yeah, confidence could be a huge boost. Mm -hmm. It could make the difference between going on and joining a team or giving up and taking up some other sport, which is not necessarily terrible, but absolutely. So these tests were for people who are already playing the game, who are not inside some steep learning curve. Right. And so, in fact, the lessons, the takeaway lesson from the hot hand research maybe should be applied carefully for younger people. Indeed. That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. You wrote a novel, and that is something I'm very interested in. So what is the novel called, and why did you write this? Okay, the novel is called Bridge at the Enigma Club. Mm -hmm. And what it actually is, is an exposition in novel form of a new idea in the game of bridge. <laughs> the game of bridge, as many of your listeners will know, is a partnership game. Yes. Played two people against two. And bridge has very strict laws about how a partnership may communicate. That they may communicate only by legal calls and plays. That they can't have any prior private agreement about the meaning of those calls and plays. Mm -hmm. And for years, that was thought to be just the end of secrecy in Bridge, that because of these rules, that you couldn't communicate anything in secret to your partner legally. It turns out to be wrong. It turns out that you can use some of the principles of cryptography to, in certain situations, communicate with your partner secretly and legally Secret, in the game of Bridge. Secretly and legally. That's right. Secretly that and legally. It sounds like breaking the law somehow. It does sound like breaking the law. And I had a lot of fun explaining these ideas in various articles in Bridge magazines and decided it was time to try to write a book mm. which explains all these ideas. And I thought the best way to do it would be from the point of view of a young person who stumbles on to a bridge club where they're using these ideas and he comes in as a big skeptic and then he finds out what's really right. going on. So that's what the idea was. You're right. Wow. So he got a following among the bridge community. It does have, I think, a certain cult following. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Are you a bridge player yourself? I am a bridge player. I, I bet you'd be a scary bridge player to play against. I don't know about that, but... <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, at the break, we were talking about that movie, uh, The Imitation Game, mm -hmm. about Alan Turing, who pretty much invented the first version, I think, of a computer. So you saw that movie? I did see that yeah, movie, what, yes. What did you, I mean, what did you think of that? I mean, it's right up your alley, because er earlier in your career, you were a cryptologist at the Navy. Yeah, Navy, that's right, yeah. yes. I certainly enjoyed the movie, and by the standards of movies that are, quote, based on fact... Yes. <laughs> um, it was reasonably close. Mm -hmm. uh, there were some major deviations from real life, but I recommend the movie. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. Are you a fan of Sherlock Holmes? I am. How could you not be? How could I not be? Right. I love Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> it's, they're all puzzles. Oh, they're yes. All, and it's no. kind of what we were talking about earlier about, you know, in literature, how puzzles are so important. And I didn't mention Sherlock, but of course. Yeah, that's right. You know, you mentioned that maybe one more example of a puzzle would be yeah, yeah, but Sherlock fun for puzzle? the readers. I have a puzzle which is a little bit like a Sherlock okay. puzzle. Okay, I love this. Go Here's ahead. how it goes. It happens to be the first day of class in first grade, and the teacher sees sitting in front of her on the front row two identically-looking boys named Ronald and Donald Bixby. And she says to the boys, Hey, you guys are twins, right? In unison, they say, No. <laughs> so after class, the teacher goes and looks at the records, and sure enough, they were born on the same day of the same year to the same parents, but they were not twins. How can this be? They were not twins. They were not twins. Same parents. Right. Born the same day. Okay. 
Now remember, I want to leave this to your readers, so listeners, yes. Don't try too hard okay, to guess. Okay, okay, <laughs> uh, um, So I'll just say that Pete's not going to give me that answer. I could see no matter what I ask, he's not. So chew on it a little bit and send me your answers. We'll check back with Pete in a little bit. I'd like to ask people about advice. You know, people have had these fascinating careers like yourself and Imagine that you can go back in time and you may have even written about time travel for all I know. <laughs> uh, no, but, <laughs> but, it, but you probably like those movies <laughs> like I did. Uh, you go back in time and let's say you're kind of sitting next to your 21 year old self. What bit of advice might you have for the 21 year old Peter Winkler, given all that you've seen and learned and done in your career? Well, it's really hard to say. I feel as if I should have some advice for a 21-year-old that I must have gained some in wisdom in the 50 years no since doubt. then. On the other hand, I feel as if I've been extremely lucky. I have a wife and two kids whom I adore and grandkids here in New York City. I have a job that I love and at the moment a sabbatical that I'm enjoying tremendously. So I really wouldn't want to change anything, right? But on the other hand, if I look back and think about the various decisions I made at various points. I can't think of any important good decisions that I made that were made for the right reason. <laughs> say, that, say that again. <laughs> Let me say that once more. Everything good I've done, I've done for the wrong reason, it okay. seems to me. That's interesting. So it seems that you just have to make decisions in life and do the best you can. So I guess I would just tell my 21-year-old self to relax and enjoy life, do what you're passionate about, and don't try to think too far ahead. It's interesting that a version of that, not quite the same, I hear from several of the guests on the SIDCast that live fascinating careers and lives. And it's a tough lesson when you're actually 21 and you want to conquer the world. You're in such a hurry. And I think the advice is slow down. It's okay. Let it come to you. It's going to happen. You mentioned your wife. I like to ask folks, how did you guys meet? Oh, we actually met as counselors in a summer camp. Oh, how do you like that? That was fun. Was the, camp? So the camp was called Science and Arts Camps. What? There's and a shock. That's right. It was a camp for bright kids, <laughs> and such as we often see here at the Museum of Mathematics. And I was actually teaching some math and some puzzles and also life-saving and tennis and soccer and whatnot mm. to kids. And my wife was doing arts and crafts. She's an artist, and we got along great, arranged to have the same day off together, and years later, eventually ended up married with children. Years later that you actually started to date or end up marrying? Well, the story is interesting. So I was in college, and so was she when we met as counselors. Okay. We had just a few dates, and then we went our separate ways. Hmm. Uh, five years later, we wrote each other letters that crossed in the mail. Oh, and just out of the blue. That's out of the blue. And I was on the West Coast at the time. I headed back east where she was living and we got together again. Yeah. Isn't it a shame that now with email and texting, that can't really happen? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Cross letters is, is harder to do with email. Yes. It has to be very precisely timed. That's right. It's, te <laughs> it's technically possible, but it's by the second now. <laughs> That's a great story. So you're here at the museum, uh, the National Museum of Mathematics, mm -hmm. on your sabbatical and you've talked a little bit about some of the activities that you're doing. And so we'll put onto the website and some of the show notes, how people can find you here and learn more about what the museum is doing, what you're doing. That would be great. Yeah. There's lots of exciting stuff going on at the museum and we invite people from all over the world and all interests to yes. come and enjoy the Well, that's one of the things that's really come out from this conversation. You don't have to be a mathematician to love math. Absolutely. Um, and you don't have to be, well, a mathematician or an expert puzzle maker or thinker to enjoy the beauty of a puzzle because it's about people. It's about human nature. 
nature. It's about paradox and there's a life lesson that comes out of it. Pete Winkler, thank you so much for spending time on the SIDCAST today. I really enjoy the conversation. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the SIDCAST. I am so appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode and I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or email me directly, sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune in to another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The Sidcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry production company and always recorded live and in person with our guest of the week.